You can turn over in your Bibles to uh, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We're working our way through this little book and almost to the conclusion here. Titus chapter 3. Today we'll be looking at the first uh, eight, eight verses. I don't know about you, but lately in the news, uh, watching the news and seeing what's happening to our country uh, moment by moment, day by day, uh, you can really get caught up, as I sometimes do, in the uh, political nature of things. And you uh, sit there and you watch the news and yell at it and throw things at it. And maybe even wish ill will on people who are <laughs> being talked about in the news at times. Um, and the, the one thing that this last week has really done for me as I've looked through this uh, section of Scripture in Titus chapter 2 is just a, a kind of a gracious reminder of God that, you know what, no matter what happens to our country... <laughs> No matter what happens to our government, no matter what happens to our health care or our finances, um, no matter what happens as far as um, our liberal state passing certain um, laws into effect that it just seemed totally uh, irrational and ridiculous, even harmful to our children. In spite of all that, uh, the one thing that, that we can count on, the one thing that we can be assured of, is that God's grace is there for us. And it will get us through even the darkest of times. Um, you know, sometimes growing up in America, we have kind of a myopic view of Christianity, we think that Christianity is American. <laughs> Somehow we've put our flag uh, across the name of Christ, thinking that uh, to be American is to be Christian, and that we are a Christian nation, and we're founded on Christian principles, and so forth and so on. And, you know, we've enjoyed several hundred years of those benefits, don't get me wrong, um, but it's sad to see and have to say today that our nation is no longer a Christian nation. They're a pagan nation. And you see the enemy undoing quickly any work that has been accomplished for the cause of Christ in our country. And um, even with that being said, it's still probably one of the, the best countries the most blessed countries in the world, bar none. People are flocking to its shores trying to get in and not having a great deal of effort either. Um, but sometimes we buy into the idea that somehow to be a Christian is to be <clears throat> American. And when we see certain principles attacked by our government that have stood for centuries, um, good principles, 
principles that really find their uh, roots in the scriptures, we have a tendency to uh, sometimes overreact to that and to think that, boy, what, what is happening here? Um, that somehow God is losing control of the situation. And when Christian people have been confronted with this in the past, a lot of times what they've done is they've turned to change, uh, to try to change the culture. They've looked at the culture and said, well, it's the culture's fault that all these things are happening. It's a pagan culture, so let's just become politically active. So back in the late 70s, 80s, you had organizations like uh, Jerry Falwell's The Moral Majority. Um, You had... um, Mrs. LaHaye, who had a a woman's organization, Concerned Women for America. And although these efforts were honorable, I really think that they sought to change something that really um, we don't have any um, business changing. (laughs) We live in a lost and dying world. Why would we think that they're going to embrace Christ or they're going to embrace Christian principles or they're going to... all of a sudden, uh, desire to see godliness thrive, that's not going to happen. And so today I want to look at some gracious reminders because we can become very embittered toward people who are not part of Christ. We can become very angry at individuals who are seeking to change our culture in a way that the Bible doesn't say is wise nor profitable. And if you've tasted of God's grace at all, we've been looking at God's grace a little bit recently. If you've tasted of God's grace at the cross, and that's the only place you can taste it, you're a changed person. Something happens. You're transformed. Uh, There's simply no way that you can receive God's gift of eternal life Have your sins forgiven forever by Jesus Christ, by the blood of Christ, and just go on living like you lived before. It just can't happen. I'm not saying there's not people that say, oh, I'm a Christian and their life hasn't changed. I would question their Christianity. I would question their commitment to Christ. I would question whether they're even saved at all if there's been no change. Everyone who's come into contact with Christ, who was transformed by the presence of Christ in the scriptures, was changed fundamentally changed by his sovereign grace and his grace alone God raised you he raised me from being what the Bible says dead in our trespasses and sins he gave us a new heart because our old heart is desperately wicked he gave us a new understanding of the truth And he brought us into a personal relationship with him, the living and true creator God. God's grace never leaves you the same person. It always changes you. God's grace always leaves you a different person than you were before. 
But at the same time, even though we've been changed and, and we've been redeemed and our sins are forgiven and we live this new life in Christ that he's called us to live, at the same time, we have to recognize that there are powerful, tremendously powerful forces at work to cause us to revert back to our old ways. To even deny that any change has taken place. The world itself bombards us daily with false messages of promises of satisfaction, with pleasures that are apart from God's will and God's desire. The flesh itself tempts us from within. It it prompts us that we need to fulfill ourselves. And we just fulfill ourselves if we just yield to our fleshly desires. And then we have the devil and all his minions creating these craftly laid traps that entice us daily into disobedience to God. See, all these forces, all these powerful forces tend to make us and allow us to forget what God has done in our hearts by his grace. And so we need to be reminded So today I want to look at some gracious reminders that Paul here points out to Titus. Because Titus was in a situation similar to ours, if you think about it, culturally. It's in the island of Crete there. These these islands were mostly pagan. He was surrounded by pagan culture. And I'm sure that maybe he grew a, little, grew a little weary of all the influence, negative influence, the, the pagan influence on his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we need to be reminded again and again and again how God's grace has transformed us, how God's grace has laid hold of our lives. Because we have a tendency to forget. We're having a, a teacher training class after after uh, church today for the Sunday school teachers. And the one point that I point out to the teachers, or I will point out to the teachers, is that, you know what, Sunday school children have an innate ability to have amnesia. They don't remember stuff. So just because the first day of Sunday school, at the beginning of the year, you say, okay, you can't talk unless you're called on. And, you know, we think, okay, we just share this with them once, and that's it. Well, that's not the way it is. They've got to be reminded over and over and over, just like us. And so follow along as I read our text for us out of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Paul says to Titus here, he reminds him, he says, Remind them to be submissive. Who's them? The Christians. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These, are, these things are excellent and profitable for all people. Paul here speaks to Titus almost as a kind, loving father. Remember, Titus was here with these believers in Crete, and they needed some reminders on how God has laid hold of their lives, how God has changed their lives. His real concern was kind of focusing on these believers who were part of this church and their witness to the the pagan society in which they lived. That was his concern. And it's very relevant for us what he shares as well. Because we live in a culture that exalts sin. It despises God. Right is wrong and wrong is right. There's an increasingly militant mood against those who hold to godly moral standards. You can ask yourself, well, how do, we, how do you respond to this? What's the right response? Should we become politically active and go out and petition things and stand in front of businesses with signs and do all that stuff? Is that, how, is that what God calls us to? Should we organize political parties? Try to gain power over the opposition? Should we stage protests? See, there's a legitimate place, I think, in a democratic government to seek to pass laws that uphold biblical standards. We should be doing that. Biblical standards of morality. But when you stop and think about it, that's like putting a Band-Aid on cancer. That's not going to fix the problem. See, what our sin-stained, perverted, sinful society needs is the gospel. They need to hear about God's grace. That's the only thing that can change the human heart. So how do we gain a hearing for the gospel of Christ among people who just boldly mock God and even mock the church, his people? Well, Paul's answer to Titus and to his fellow Christians there who were living in a, in a society much like ours, is that, you know what, you have to live godly lives in this evil world. You have to be able to live a life for Christ that people notice is changed. It's different. There's something different about you. The changed lives of believers will provide a platform for the opportunity to have a verbal witness which will allow us to point sinners to God's grace. But to do that, we have to be reminded of how God's grace has changed us. And so he runs down through verse 8 here. Much of it is in in, in verses 4 to 7, but all the way down to verse 8. And the first thing he points out is that God's grace causes us to remember how you now are to act toward this ungodly world. Because we've been transformed by God's grace, he kind of points out here seven marks of godly character. Seven marks how we should act toward an unbelieving world. 
Sometimes we forget this. <laughs> we need to be reminded of this. And he's sharing specifically here with the Cretan church. And they'd already obviously been taught these things somewhere along the lines because he's saying that he's reminding them. But Paul, as a general father, he felt the need that, you know what, this is important that you remember these things. Barclay writes this, The Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authority. Polybius, the Greek historian, said of them that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and wars. That's the kind of society that this new church here in Crete, led by Titus, was living in. And that's the kind of makeup of the people of the church. They were just used to kind of rolling up their sleeves and going at it. And so Paul lays out seven marks here of godly character in relation to that kind of godless society. Look at the first one. Christians must be subject to government rulers and authorities. He says that there in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, we read that and we say, well... (laughs) You don't understand what our government's doing. You don't understand. Well, yeah, we do. And they did at the time. They were not ruled by a Christian government. And this is consistent, by the way, with even what the apostles teach. Look over at Romans 13. We'll be touching on this when we go through the book of Romans, but just to read it for you, so you know I'm not making this up. Romans 13. Look at what Paul writes in the first uh, seven verses here of Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Remember, he's writing this letter to the church of Rome. For there is no authority except from God, and those who exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's, look at that, servant for your good. See, we forget the role of government is to protect the righteous and punish evildoers. That's the role of government. That's why we have law. That's why we have rules. And it says here that they're God's servant. For if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and avenges an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also (laughs) pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. 
I should be preaching this around April 15th. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Even over in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, we see the same, same instructions. This is an isolated case. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those, look once again, who do evil. And to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You might say, well, we don't have an emperor. I would say, well... I don't know if he understands that. Okay. We have a president. But we're called to be subject to government rulers and authorities. See, think of where Paul lived. He lived under the, the, the tyranny of the, the, the Roman ruler Nero. And he didn't make any exceptions. He didn't say, you know, now, except if you live under a government like I'm living under... I mean, Nero's the exception. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say, well, if, you're, if your government's pure godless, then, you know, then we make it. No, he didn't say that. There's a lot of bribery. There's a lot of corruption in governments. There was back then. There is today. But it's, it's very, very important that the government of that time was in no means even close to being Christian. And Paul didn't say, hey, these rules apply to you if you have a Christian-based government. No, he said government's there to punish the evildoers and to reward those who do good. That's the role of government. The only time believers are required to disobey, and that brings us to the, 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 really the second point here, Christians must be obedient is that when the government commands us to do something that would require us to disobey God. At that point, like in Acts 5.29, we have to say, you know what? We must obey God rather than men. But we should be willing to suffer the punishment of our disobedience. I mean, when you stop and you look at how our country began, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I love our country. I think it's one of the the finest in the world. But I don't think biblically you can find and back up (laughs) the way that our founding fathers participated in a Revolution to overthrow a duly constituted government. Um, even, 
even over in, in Germany during, you know, the, all the, the chaos that was going on there. And you read Bonhoeffer's and his attempts at what he tried to do. Once again, I think that, for example, today, I mean, I think a, a, a modern-day illustration of something that went on like in Germany is, is abortion, the issue of abortion. Millions of, of unborn babies are literally slaughtered. And when you stop and you, you think of that, do you think the God of the universe is just going to sit back and say, I'm just going to continue to bless your country? No, he's not. I mean, beloved, to be honest, our country is, is bearing um, the disciplinary hand of God. It's seeing the wrath of God being kind of poured out across our nation through violence, through the escalation of evil in, in oh so many ways. And I think in a lot of ways God has said, hey, I'll, I'll bless you if you're going to do what's right, if you're going to base it on principles that are founded in my word. But when you go off the, the beaten path and you begin to do your own thing and you begin to, to murder innocent, unborn children by the millions, don't you think uh, God is going to take an issue with that? And we've seen economically, we've seen uh, socially, in so many different ways, our country is, is really taking it on the chin. And I think it's, it's a direct result of the disciplinary hand of God. And so the idea that we should be subject to government rulers and authorities is clearly laid out there. And we're also to be obedient except when we're told to do something that violates the word of God. And for some... That's, they're taking issue with some of the, even the new health care reform because it's causing them to, to do some things that they feel as Christians they can't do in relation to birth control and other things, uh, abortion funding and whatnot. And as they stand up and they choose to make that an issue, they're gonna, the, the government's not just going to sit idly by and say, okay, we'll give you a pass on that. No, there's going to be penalties, there, and you have to be willing to take that. You have to be willing to deal with that. So in whatever capacity that we're, we're citizens of a nation, we're called to be obedient to them. We're called to be in subject to them. We shouldn't form a rebellion group or a revolutionary group or something like that. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. And unfortunately, the way to stop Abortion, that's a very evil, serious sin, is not to have people go out and kill the doctors that are performing the abortions. That's kind of crazy. That's not correct. And so you have to stop and you have to say, well, what is the, the solution here? We have to look at these individuals one heart at a time. We have to begin to remember that, you know what, we're to act toward these people who are outside the, the, the realm of Christ. They're not saved. They don't know really even what they're doing in some cases. 
And we need to be willing to act towards them in a godly manner, even though they may be very sinful, hateful people. And that's the third thing here. Christians must be ready, what, for every good deed. He says there in in Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, not just submissive, but to be obedient. And then he says, and be ready for every good work, every good deed. In other words, we we have to be prepared. We have to be willing to participate in activities that promote the the welfare of the community. We don't just, you know, grab our family and go build a compound and live all by ourselves and have nothing to do with anybody. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to be the light, the salt. We can't just stand off and, and not have any involvement at all. That's not what we're called to do. When God sent disobedient Judah into exile in Babylon, he said through Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 29, 7, he said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. In other words, I'm sending you into exile, but I want you to seek the welfare of those people and pray to the Lord on his behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. I mean, that kind of makes sense. I mean, the wheels are coming off the cart. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure that out. But what can we do as believers that will help, that will improve our communities? And maybe it depends on our gifts and our talents and and how God has called us to use our time and, and so forth. But maybe it's getting involved. If your kids go to public school, get involved in the school. Don't just drop them off and say, hey, have a nice day. Go be a teacher assistant. So you have a voice in the classroom somehow. Get involved in the community. Coach a hockey team or a volleyball team or a football team or baseball team. And we need to be careful that we don't compromise our convictions when we do such. Um, We should take the lead as Christian people, I believe, in our community to do good works as a witness to our world. That's That's what Paul was telling Titus here. So be ready to do those good works. Uh, Fourthly, it says Christians should malign no one. I know it's, it's easy to get frustrated. Like I said, I mean, you yell at the TV and you, whatever. I mean, I've done that. But it says, speak evil of no one. Even a politician, if you disagree with them, even this, even that, whatever it might be. That's, that's the, the standard we're called to. I mean, it's easy to get frustrated with the whole government bureaucracy and all that, and and really um, malign people as a result of that. In your neighborhood, if a neighbor does something wrong, you know, whatever it might be, you know, that doesn't give you the right 
to, to run that neighbor down at the, you know, when you're talking to the other neighbor. That, that's not as how Christians should act. You won't win that neighbor to Christ if you alienate him by maligning him. And the fifth thing here, Christians should be peaceable. Peaceable. New American Standard says uncontentious. Uncontentious. Avoid quarreling. Uh, the Greek word is is basically a macho, which is the opposite of macho. It's kind of interesting. As Christians, you know, we don't need to act like some, you know, bigger than life macho person trying to prove that no one can just shove us around. We shouldn't take offense easily. If we're wrong, we're always called to reconcile, to, cons- to kind of to, to deal with the situation in, in, a, in a positive way. We don't just cross our arms and say, well, that person treated me this way, that's it. I'm writing them off. We, we don't have the right to do that as believers. It's more important to maintain good relations with your neighbor and, than to stand up for your rights. We forget that. Even in the church, we forget that. It says there that we should be gentle. The Greek word has the idea of forbearance, of not standing up for your rights. Because if you do, maybe you would shred that relationship. It's not saying you're not wrong. It's just saying we have to be wise in how we react when we are wronged. I mean, sometimes I've seen believers stand up on their rights and principles to the degree where they cause such damage toward an unbeliever that they would never want to hear about their Savior. And they think they're doing the right thing. I'm not going to do this. This is my principle. And, you know, and so they isolate the whole church or the whole family or whoever they're dealing with based on, on, a, on a simple principle that they could probably... Dealt with in a different way. It doesn't mean you have to compromise. But we have to be gentle in how we deal with people. And then seventhly, Christians must show every consideration for all men. It says there, be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Consideration is the word. A lot of times it's even translated gentleness or meekness. Uh, if Galatians 5 talks about it as a fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't mean weakness. It rather means strength under control. It was used of a horse that is broken so that it is completely submissive to the master. You have this horse that could pretty much do whatever it wants to do. If you've ever been around a horse, they're very strong animals. And yet, when a horse is trained properly, you can get on that horse and you can just tug on the right rein just just ever so slightly. And that horse just does exactly what you want it to do. Now, that horse could say, you know what? I'm not going to go to the right. I'm going to go to the left. I'm not going to slow down. I'm going to go faster. And sometimes, I've been on a horse where you can pull on those reins all you want and that horse has a mind of its own and it's just going. 
And you're physically hurting the horse as you're pulling back as the, the, the bit bites into its mouth. And they don't care. They're stronger than us. That's the idea here. It's strength under control. We should be, have a consideration for all people. In our dealings with outsiders, we should be under the control of the Holy Spirit, responding graciously and kindly, even when we're wronged. Now, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes, you know, people push our buttons, and man, we react in a way that's just, where did that come from? Uh, You know, and that, once again, drives us back to God's grace, doesn't it? See, Paul's not calling us here to be perfect, perfect, perfect. He's calling us to live in a reasonable way. And these seven basic characteristics here, godly characteristics, kind of point us in the right direction. He's not demanding perfection. None of us are perfect in any way. And so the first thing there is the grace of God wants us to know how to act toward this ungodly world we live in. Secondly, he says not only does the grace of God cause us to teach us how to act toward the ungodly, but it also reminds us, you ready for this? That we were once just like them. (laughs) This is something we forget real quick when we become a Christian. Look at what it says here in, in Titus. It says in verse 3, Titus 3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish. That, that word for shows the logical connection between verses 2 and 3. You know, I don't know about you, but I get sometimes impatient <laughs> with uh, unbelievers. I, I just get impatient with them. And, and sometimes... You know, I get impatient because um, sometimes they just act like selfish jerks and, and they're just, you know, they're, they're abusing you in some way, whatever it might be, and they're taking advantage of you and you just get impatient with that whole process. But see, if, if we want to behave as godly people towards them, and that's what it calls us to do in verses 1 and 2, then we need to remember that before we met Christ, guess what? We were one of them. <laughs> we don't like to remember that, do you? We were just like them. Unbelievers are, are living for themselves. They're not living for Christ. They're living for themselves. Sometimes, on the other hand, I get frustrated with Christians that talk to unbelievers in such a way and they hold them to a Christian standard. And I'm thinking, why would you think this unbeliever who doesn't know Christ, doesn't go to church or whatever, would want to live the way that your family does. They want to have the same standards that you do. They don't know any better. And note that Paul includes himself in this description. The apostle Paul does. He says, for we ourselves. He doesn't say you, yourselves. He doesn't say that. He says, no, you know what? We're all in this together. And then he begins to list seven characteristics of unbelievers. So he tells us seven ways how we can react in a positive way to a pagan culture. But then he says, you know what? These are basic characteristics of someone who doesn't know Christ. And we were all there at one point. The first one is we were foolish. For we ourselves were once foolish. Foolish. 
What's that mean? That, that, that word means that we were without any spiritual wisdom. We had no spiritual understanding. We did not know God. We were far from God. We weren't concerned with what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immoral of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. When you if you get a chance to watch this this DVD of evolution versus God, you're going to see some very very intelligent people on here. I mean people that are college professors with PhD after PhD in their name and they head up whole departments. And when confronted with some basic reasoning and truth, they look very foolish. I mean, I'm surprised that when Ray Comfort goes to interview people, they just say, I'm not, I'm not giving you any, any information because you're going to use it against me somehow. And that's what he does in a way. When you get done with this video, you're thinking, how can these people be so foolish? They don't know God. That's why. They, they think they're wise, but you know what? They're fools. And we were part of that group of people. They think they're doing the right thing. I mean, when you stop and you listen to news people talk about this whole health care situation, and you have people on one side and you have people on the other side, and you're thinking, man, how could it be so far different? How could you be a human being and, and think this way? And yet, when you sit back and you think about it, hey, on one side, they're concerned that everybody has health care. That's a good thing. I mean, you know, I'm sure, you know, people, people need to have their health care taken care of. And I'm sure that there's a cost when people don't have insurance, and you can kind of reason that around. And then on the other hand, you know, they take it to the extent of, well, we're going to tell you everything that you're going to do, what insurance you're going to have, what doctor you're going to go to, what diseases are going to be covered, blah, 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 all this stuff. And so you can see both sides of it. I don't think that there's really maliciousness on either side. I think they really believe this stuff. They really think that they're doing the right thing. They're foolish. Secondly, it says there that they're disobedient. Not only were we foolish, but we were disobedient. In other words, we didn't obey God. Well, we didn't obey God because we didn't know God. We only obeyed the laws of the government when it was convenient for us to do so. And the only reason we did it then was because we feared the consequences of being caught might be uh, at greater risk than uh, doing the right thing. And so we were living for ourselves and whatever furthered our own interests. That's just the way it is. We hate the thought of, of being submissive or obedient to any authority, including God. That's why we live in a kind of a godless society almost. People don't want to deal with God because they can do whatever they want. 
I mean, it's all around us. Fallenness is all around us. I mean, just this last week, we had a cement pad poured over on the other side of the building on the right-hand side. Just a small pad, two by seven feet. Guy came out, finished it all up, looked good. You know, I come in the next morning. Some teenagers were over there, drew all this cuss words on it, and right in the cement. And I'm thinking, why would you do this? You know, luckily the cement wasn't totally dry, so I kind of used my sneakers and was able to, you know, smooth it out to the point where you couldn't really say, see what was being written. But it's just disgusting stuff. And I thought, you know, they're disobedient. You know, they're, they don't have a grudge against our church. They're just out there doing what comes natural. <laughs> also, thirdly, we're deceived. It says we're deceived. In other words, we didn't understand the, the, the spiritual truth. We were disobedient and we're being led astray. We didn't understand spiritual truth. And so we're being led astray by Satan. There's only two roads. You're either on the road of the Lord or the road of Satan. I mean, when people think they're sophisticated enough to throw off God's standard of moral purity and, and kind of you, you see some of these entertainers today, they're doing all sorts of just horrendous things. And they're not just doing it in the privacy of their own thing. No, they're, they're putting them, on, they put them on video and so the whole world can see. Or they'll perform in a way that's just, in a way, disgusting. And yet you think, why would you do this? They're deceived. They think they can find happiness and fulfillment through the lust of the flesh and by accumulating material things. We thought, when we were there, we thought that we could violate God's law. And you know what? There's not going to be any consequences. Get away with it. They're deceived. Fourthly, it says that we were once enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. It says slaves to various passions and pleasures. I mean, sin is kind of like an addictive drug. It always enslaves the one who dabbles with it every time. At first, it kind of gives you the message, oh, it's going to meet all your needs. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. It even seems pleasurable for a season, the Bible says. When you violate God's laws of purity, you violate the principle of putting foreign things into your body, drugs, whatever it might be. Well, initially, those things are satisfying. People drink to dull the pain, the problem, the pressures, whatever it might be. There's people who practice dishonest businesses. And you know what? I mean, they're, they're making some money by doing that. And all that is sin, and it enslaves us, and it ultimately destroys us. And fifthly, it says we once spent our lives in malice, passing our days in malice. Malice means that you have ill will toward others. That you just, you, you just don't like somebody so much that you're actually wishing ill on them. It stems from selfishness, wanting our own way. 
even if it means harming somebody else to get it. It doesn't matter. If you have to lie about a rival to get him fired, well, then do it because that's your promotion. If you have to cheat somebody out of something to get what you want, well, that's too bad. That's the way the business world works. If you, spread, if you have to spread nasty rumors about your enemy to make him look bad, well, you know what? It's a dog-eat-dog world. That's malice. That's what it's all about. And then it speaks about envy. Envy means wanting what someone else has and desiring it to be in the position that they are in. It kind of, you know, you're wanting something so much and you're wanting to be somebody that you're not. And it has really, it's closely connected with greed. Envy led Ahab and Jezebel to kill Naboth in order to take his vineyard. Even though they already had a bunch of vineyards, they had more than they needed. Envy led the Pharisees to kill Jesus because he was gaining more followers than them. It's a deed of the flesh. Galatians tells us that. Envy. And then it says we were once hateful. I mean, I think very few people would admit that they were hateful. I mean, we, we like to flatter ourselves as being lovable people. So we think, oh, well, I would never hate anybody. But hatred is, is basically this. It's essentially self-centeredness, and it's a disregard for others' feelings and, and, and needs. I mean, practically speaking, it, it kind of goes like this. If someone hurts me, and I respond by thinking or saying this, you know what, he can just drop dead That's all I care. I don't care. That's hatred. If you say, I don't ever want to talk to that person again, that's hatred. So even if it doesn't take an outward form of trying to hurt someone or kill someone, it says that we're all marked by hatred before we came to Christ. Because we all live for ourselves. We were indifferent toward others unless we could get something from them. You may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, you know what? I was never like this. I'm basically a pretty good person. I mean, even before I was a Christian, I was a pretty good person. And I'll just say this, it's true that not everybody displays these characteristics to the worst degree. That's true. Maybe you had a good upbringing in a Christian family where your parents taught you to be considerate toward others and practice Christian morality. Perhaps your sin was restrained because of your circumstances. But if you know your own heart... And God knows it better than you do. Every one of these sins is just lurking below the surface. The truth basically is this, beloved. On the heart level, we all have violated every one of the Ten Commandments to some degree. As Jesus said in Matthew five twenty-one to 30, Anger is murder in God's sight. Lust is adultery. All have stolen, all have lied, all have coveted. We've all practiced hypocrisy, trying to impress others that we're better than 
We know we are. I mean, stop and think, why is verse 3 in this text? It's there because I think Paul wants, and he knows that in order for us to act with love and to act with good deeds toward unbelievers who mistreat us continuously, who malign us continuously, who falsely accuse us continuously, we need to remember what we used to be like. We're made of the same stuff. And you know what? We would still be acting just like this if it wasn't for God's grace in this glorious truth that he points out in verse 4. God's grace helps us to remember that it was God's undeserved kindness and mercy that changed you. But when the goodness and loving kindness, look at what it says, of God our Savior appeared. I love that word, but. It's one of the most glorious phrases in all of Scripture. God's kindness, God's love, God's mercy. They, they give us the effects of our, our salvation, regeneration, renewal, justification. They give us the means of our salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. They give us the goal of our salvation, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this wonderful gift of God. I mean, in verses 4 through 7, it's very clear that the thrust of this text is dealing with salvation. And it says that, you know what, it's not because of who you were. It's not because of your own goodness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, what's it say? He saved us. Why? Because we needed saving. We couldn't save ourselves, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's why it's so key to understand that we don't have a man-centered salvation. It's not up to us to save ourselves. It's up to God to save us. We can't save ourselves. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He created us, transformed us, made us a brand new person in Christ. I mean, Paul's point here is very clear. If you received mercy when you deserved judgment, then you should be able to show God's kindness, love, and mercy to unbelievers when they don't show you the same. Because then they will look at you in a different way. They will say, why are you treating me this way? I am treating you in a nasty fashion. I'm not being polite to you. I'm I'm being downright nasty to you, and and you're not responding in the normal fashion. Why? And you can point them to Christ. It's God's undeserved kindness and mercy that changed us through His grace. 
And they're done through the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see God, you see the Son, you see the Holy Spirit all involved in this process. I love verse 6. It says, whom he poured out on us sparingly. (laughs) No, richly. Through Jesus, Jesus Christ, our Savior. He didn't withhold anything. He just poured it out. Remember when Jesus was anointed with that flask of perfume. And Judas' response was, what are you thinking? We could have sold this stuff. This is, you know, why would you just, you know, waste the whole thing? See, when God reaches us and he saves us, he always does so in a lavish fashion. He, he does so in an abundant fashion. He does so in a way that is, is just so rich. So much more than what we need. God just piles it on through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace. Justified basically means that we have a different standing before God than we did before. When you come to Christ, your standing before God, the Father, changes. Before you were condemned, you were one who was sinful. You had Works of the flesh. You didn't have your own righteousness. There was nothing that could be done for you. But when God saved you, he took the righteousness of Christ and he put it on you. He put it in your account. He gave you his righteousness because you had none of your own. And because of that, it changed your standing with God. No longer does God look at us in Christ as those condemned to hell. No longer does God look at us as these horrible, sinful people. No, when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're placed into his body. We are in Christ. So we are justified by his grace, something we don't deserve. And the reason is is that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, if you're looking for hope in this life, you're going to be looking a long time if you don't look to the cross. That's the only place we can find any hope. The idea that we can be resurrected from our sinful dead state and be a living, living being who once again has a reconciled relationship with God the Father. God desires that from every one of us. And in verse 8 there, when he says, and this saying is trustworthy, this is kind of a way that, that, that Scripture says, you know what, this is, this is true beyond, it's been tested and, and, and tried. I'm not just making this up. Paul's saying, I'm not just pulling this out of the the air here. This is a trustworthy saying. It's based upon the word of God. And he tells Titus, I want you to insist on these things. 
And here's the whole reason. Here's why we do it. Here's why we let people treat us this way. Here's why we respond the way that we talked about. It's all summed up right here in verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful. Look at, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. I pray that this morning that you understand what Christ has done for you. That even somebody like John Newton, who was basically a a drunken sailor, an evil slave trader, but by God's grace he became a, a great preacher, hymn writer. It doesn't matter what you've done in your past. God wants us to be reminded that you know what? It's only because of the grace of God that that we're saved at all. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. We thank you that he truly has not just died on a cross, wasn't just buried, but Lord, on the third day that he rose, and he rose in victory over sin and death. Father, if He would have been unwilling to do that. If for some reason he didn't accomplish that, there would be no hope for us at all. And so, Father, we thank you that your son has given his life for ours. That as he died on the cross, that he died specifically for each one of us. And, Father, we thank you that we can be reconciled in our relationship with you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If there's any here this morning who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, it shouldn't be a hard decision. The idea that God is offering you something that you could never receive on your own. Through grace, he's giving you forgiveness for all your sin. For everything you've ever done wrong in violation of his law. And he's not just forgiving that past sin, but he's promising you new life in Christ. He's allowing you to be reconciled back into your relationship with your creator. And that's all accomplished through us coming to the cross. Willingly, bowing our knee, yielding up control of our lives to him. He's the one that created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Father, I pray that even this morning that they would place their faith or trust in you. And as believers, Lord, I just pray that we would be aware that First John one nine says that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We partake of these elements here this morning as symbols of what your son did on the last supper that he had with his disciples. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as we pass these symbols around, Lord, whether it's the bread cracker or the the juice, that we'd remember what they represent. They represent your blood, your body that was given for us. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.